0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The show we're about to present for you is Plato's Cave. We're going to look at three films tonight and speak about them in depth. My name is Thomas Cordwell, and I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Alexandra heller Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hi, Hi, Hi Cerise. <laughs> tonight, we have three films for you. The first film, shot entirely in Vanuatu, starring and co-written by a community of locals who maintain a traditional tribal lifestyle, *Tanna* is a based on a true story of forbidden love that resulted in great cultural change. And then the new film by renowned Taiwanese filmmaker Hao Shao Shen, *The Assassin*, is a meditative spin on the wuxia genre. It's about an elite assassin in 9th century China who is sent to kill a man she knew from her childhood. And then we're going to end the show looking at a classic. In this case, one of the films screening as part of the Love Actually, A Century of British Romance program as part of the British Film Festival. We're going to be looking at their, their 1970 pick, Sunday Bloody Sunday. It's a 1971 film made by Joel Schlesinger, whose previous film had been Midnight Cowboy. Sunday Bloody Sunday explores the dynamics of a love triangle with a frankness that still today feels refreshing. In fact, that entire program's really really um, quite an interesting program. The idea is it's all romance films from a different decade. But I'd argue they're, all, they're very much films about love, about relationships, about romance, rather than necessarily being romance films themselves. But um, we'll get to that later on the show. First of all, though, Tanner. This is named after a volcanic island in Vanuatu, where the entire film uh, was shot. And, yeah, it's the first film to be shot entirely on Vanuatu. It's about the Yakal tribe, who are trying to end a conflict with a neighbouring tribe through an arranged marriage. Uh, Unfortunately, the bride, who is supposed to be sent to the other tribe, is in love with the grandson of the village uh, chief. Now, this is an Australian production. If you look at the credits of the film, there are several Australian funding bodies listed in the credits. It's directed by Australians, uh, Martin Butler and Bentley Dean. They also worked as writers on the film, and they were also uh, some of the producers. And Bentley Dean was the cinematographer. Both these uh, men have a, have a documentary background, and both spent considerable time on 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 Tanner, on the island of Tanner, before they made this film. In fact, Bentley Dean I believe lived there for seven months with his family. So I, I'm mentioning all this because it's important to stress that you know, this is a country that doesn't have a huge film industry of its own, if any. And so these two Australians and this Australian production that's gone in worked very closely in collaboration with the Yakel tribe, which is who the film is about. The people from the tribe live this traditional lifestyle that is uh, removed from anything we would regard as modern. In fact, I have to admit, while watching, I went to this film knowing nothing about it. I actually thought it was a film set in the distant past until about the 20-minute or 30-minute mark we realised that it's set relatively recently, but the people who this film is about have chosen to live away from our Western concept civilization. Um, the people from the tribe all play parts that roughly correspond with their own position in the village and they help develop the story behind this film and it's based on an incident that occurred in 1987. So this, this sort of reminded me of films like the Laos set film The Rocket and Rolf de Heer's Ten Canoes which was set in northern, remote northern Australia because these are both films that involve filmmakers going to parts of the world where there isn't any filmmaking. The filmmakers embedded themselves with local communities, achieve their trust and respect and work very closely with these communities to produce a film with western production values but telling a story specific to the people from these regions um, and all these films and, and a few others of a similar nature i think are, are really commendable for how well they, they they approach this process and what they did to get the film made and the end result uh, interesting it's worth noting that tanner is edited by rolf de heer's regular editor tanya neem who um also uh, edited Another country. And in fact, the filmmakers screened 10 canoes for the Yakal people um, to convey to them what they wanted to do. And in fact, most of the people performing in this film had never seen a film before, let alone seen a camera or anything resembling a cinema. And I think the results are really, really impressive. The production values are very strong. The performances in this film are really damn good. I mean, And I think this is because often when you get non-professional actors they're people who have an awareness of what film acting is and try to mimic what they think acting is. I think the difference is in this film that these people have known that baggage, so they're, they're playing the part so incredibly convincingly, and they look stunning. The guy who plays the lead man, this um, this village chief's grandson, apparently he was chosen for the part because he was declared the most good-looking man in the village. I mean, this is supermodel material. He's kind of crazy handsome. <laughs> um, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous in this film. Uh, there's there's the sequences shot on an active volcano which uh, you know you, you have to see this film to experience the immense beauty of the of these shots it's really well paced the story is really easy to follow and i quite like the fact at no point do they sort of stop and explain to you the customs of the tribe instead we see all the customs as they work in action rather than having them yeah explain to us And, look, you know, it's a classic forbidden love story. Our sympathies are predominantly with the lovers-defying convention, but the film also very much appreciates the the difficult and complex situation that faces this tribe. And this is the really interesting question about this kind of story, and I'm really keen to to hear what you both think about this, is that it's a film about a practice that is seemingly part of their everyday life, but very much at odds with values that we may bring to it. Um, Ultimately, I think this is a film that, effectively shows the perspective of the people in, in the film but, but most importantly reveals that they are able to be self-critical and and progressive in the way that they, they learn about how these values have impact the lives of these two young people but it's really complex and we're getting into that cultural relativity uh, territory here um but look I- yeah, very keen to hear what you think. I think the film reconciled all these conflicting issues in a really beautiful way. I think this is quite an important,
1: impressive work. I agree with you that it, it really um sort of balanced that line very, very well between um, making a kind of universal story but also one that is very specific to the people that that are making the film and that the film's about. And that that's a bit, bit of a tricky thing, and I was sort of curious watching the film whether it would actually pull it off. Um there was one point at the start um, where there's just some kids larking about in the water, just kids at the pool. And it's this beautiful, simple little universal moment where one of the... Uh, Celine, one of the main character's younger sister, who's a beautiful, beautiful character, great performance from her as well, she runs off... Uh, she jumps out of the water and runs off with one of the kids' uh, Loincloth, I think. Sheath. sheath. Penis sheath. Penis sheath. <laughs> yes. And it is it is it is epic lulls. Like, there is yeah. there is laughter yeah. ahoy. And it's like, how many times <laughs> have you seen that down at the Fitzroy pool? You know, it's funny. And it's this cross-cultural, universally funny to nick somebody's sheath <laughs> while they're <laughs> in the water. I mean, just these beautiful... Eloquent little moments. The second credit, um, when the, when the credits ran for this, so we had the director's names, and then after that, there was a credit for a cultural director, which I think almost s- sort of summarizes, I guess, the, the the conscious way that that they that this film was made in in kind of respecting respect is a bit of a a, a watery word perhaps in a film like this, but um, it just seemed very intuitive to it to present these kind of balance a very very universal story, but also have it be a very specific story at the same time um, the stuff about Christianity the way that the people in the yeah. tribe spoke about Christianity is just something that I've never seen before, I just found it so refreshing and wonderful, I think at, at one point they come across some Chris, Christian missionaries and they decide to kind of back off, I think the phrase that they use is these people freak me out yeah. <laughs> I, I laughed out loud yeah, that and was I'm
0: one of my favourite really the
1: <laughs> there's a beautiful scene where one of the tribal elders is explaining to uh, Wawa the, the young woman in this um, sort of controversial relationship about the relationship between um, Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth. He's got a photo and he's showing her. Just this, it's like, you know, we choose not to be a part of that world. You know, we're not sticking to kind of tribal traditions because... We don't know any better. That kind of, you know, colonial assumption. We, they, they even refer. I think at one point they refer to the people in the Christian missionary as the lost people. These these mm-hmm. people have lost. They've lost their way.
2: That whole business with Prince Philip, by my understanding, is based in truth too. That Philip did turn up there at one point and was embraced by the community in some weird way, and he some weird title was bestowed upon him, not unlike Australia in two thousand and
0: fifteen. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other important thing about that scene. is they also use that scene to remind us that the British royal family have had arranged marriages for an awfully yes. long time as well, including the Queen of Australia.
2: Yeah, yeah. But there are a few good jibes at Westerners, in fact, um, and that the Christians there are very peculiar. And there's uh, a moment where it seems really muddled, their particular uh, take on Christianity, because these very clearly uh, Vanuatu and folk are pointing up towards the volcano when they refer to God, and, um, to their god, and we already know that the volcano is um, a, a godlike creature, a, a godlike uh, entity in uh, for the for the other folk uh, on the island. But with the Christians, sort of pointing towards this volcano god too, and I heard it on the soundtrack rather than saw it in the subtitles. But they use the term yasser which is actually the name of that volcano. Yep, uh, they call the god Yahoo. The other. Uh, Vanuatuans. I just found this really peculiar uh, and intriguing and, and muddled and probably accurate. Uh, just what the weird things that happen when Christian missionaries mm. go so far out of their depth and well, just convert people. It just doesn't fit. Who, yeah, yeah. there's it just, just no fit at well, all. Well, Christianity is often sort of, uh,
0: what's the word, appropriated existing um, rituals and belief systems yeah. and celebrations. I mean, you know, we see it in our own culture with Christmas and Easter. So, yeah, you see a version
2: of that happening in here again. Yeah, that's true. What we've taken on is no less uh, peculiar. Uh, this is such a gorgeous, gorgeous film. It is shot exquisitely. Uh, that uh, tropical rainforest that they inhabit is so beautiful. I felt really transported. It was a real shock to my system to, after the film, find myself in Ligon Court, uh, the mall outside Cinema Nova, where this is screening very jarring i think uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, important film this I, I it somehow manages to avoid being somehow too anthropological we don't get that sense that this is an ethnographic absolutely um, mm-hmm. uh, endeavor that it's genuinely trying to let these people tell their story uh, and enable them uh, to tell it in their language uh, in their own voices and with their own rituals uh, and and not that be observed in too much of an othered gaze and I, I think it's just a really fabulous film. I,
1: I agree completely. I'd shout I mean you mentioned the soundtrack before, shout out to Lisa Gerrard. Yes. She really, like when yeah. when, when her voice, I mean there's nobody else that really sounds like Lisa Gerrard and when, when yeah. her vocals came in it's like oh I've I found my film. I, I was loving it already, and that that was like a special little treat for me. She
0: lends her vocals to some extraordinarily diverse films. It just she pops up all over the place in unexpected ways, and yeah, the, the whole production team behind this are quite extraordinary. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people who have worked on Rolf de Heer's films, and which makes a lot of sense because I think the sort of the whole ethical approach to filmmaking, which is so obviously gone on in this film, is similar to to his approach working with remote indigenous communities. Um, and, and that comes through the film itself as well. I think it's important to stress that you have a sense that this film is, is you know, doing the right thing. You know, I, I had this sense without researching b- b- beforehand that a, a real attempt has been made to understand the cust- the very specific customs of this community and to give them a, a voice of their own. And it, it just comes through with so much clarity. You know, that point I made before is there's no instructions into how their, their, their customs work you just see it at play and it makes sense because when you see it yeah effectively as part of the narrative you you make the connections that you need to make yourself and those performances i was just going to
1: say those performances are just so electric i mean they're really some of the best performances that i've seen this year
2: and Um, i think the story is actually also just an original take just a twist on that star-crossed lovers romeo and juliet thing whereby rather than one from one tribe and one from another being forbidden to join. It's actually the opposite the exact opposite. It's two from the one tribe but they have to join uh, or one of them has to join the opposing tribe in order to um, keep the peace and that cannot be uh, in accordance with their love and it's just that is just a lovely twist in its own right yeah. something quite organic though. I don't think that that was a contrived, oh how, what's our mm. twist It's that's just how it Well was. it's based on something that actually yeah. happened, yeah. And yeah.
0: they're a lovely couple too, I mean both those yeah. actors are just very gorgeous to look at in all regard in all regards um and I think it's important to know that these are, this was a really significant event in their recent history which did which did result in a change of thinking about a particular part of their their custom and and this is not a, a community that you know Change the rules a, a, a lot but um I, I was just kind of yeah i mean i was moved and, and just in, in, impressed with how this community had learnt from what happened to evolve their own culture
1: this question of evolution i think is really central because it becomes quite explicit you know especially near the end of the film you know how do we evolve how mm. do we keep going how do we survive these questions are very real um, and very practical these are very practical questions you know how do we keep our culture going but it's never didactic it's yeah. never. It never feels like. Um, it never. Interestingly enough, it never feels like a documentary. It's so connected to this really vital, beautiful human experience that we've just seen sort of unfold before us. It's always fundamentally a really human tale.
2: And how lovely is it when uh, the sort of imagery we often associate. Um, uh, impressionistically and film expressionistically too just sort of uh, when when lovers meet and are brought together and there are fireworks and here we <laughs> actually have an active volcano <laughs> as a backdrop to a, a burgeoning love affair spectacular
0: three triple ah That was a pure person. That's from the soundtrack to the 2001 film Millennium Mambo by director Xiao Xiaoshen. That song is by Lim Going, a Chinese musician and composer who frequent, frequently writes music for Hou's films, including his latest one, The Assassin, the next film that we're going to discuss here on Plato's Cave.
1: Well... Shoshin, as you said, uh, made Millennium Mambo. He's a pretty celebrated Taiwanese director. He also made a film called Flowers of Shanghai. Both of those played at MIF, I think, in years gone by. It's been eight years since his last film and I think the general consensus is that it's been well worth the wait. He won Best Director at Cannes this year for this film and I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that this is going to turn up on a lot of best of lists for the year. I think that's a given, it could also be on my best of list for the year. Who knows? Yes, Enigmatic, it's, aren't it's I? Nudging its way into mine. Mm, yeah, it's a mystery. We'll have to have to wait until the end of the year to find out. Oh, made with a fair whack of Chinese money, filmed in Mandarin and on location across China. It's um, as you said earlier. It's a reworking of the wuxia category, which loosely translates into, I guess, some kind of martial hero, hero kind of popular Chinese martial arts genre. Um, I think. In the West, at least, the big kind of films that we would associate uh, with this category would be things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and House of Flying Daggers. This film is not like those films, I think, needs to be said pretty strongly from the outset. Very different, but we'll probably get to that more shortly. So The Assassin follows uh, Xu Kei, who plays a, the, the eponymous assassin uh, Nai Yin Yong, um, set in 9th century China. She's a general's daughter taken by a nun when she was 10 years old who trains her up to be a pretty good assassin Um, and her job is to eradicate bad guys. It's not bad. Um, The film begins when she's older and she fails in one of her jobs. She's starting to soften a little bit, it is suspected, and the nun sends her back to the region where she grew up to kill the man that she was betrothed to when she was younger. Now, she, of course, has to face up to a bunch of family stuff, we all know that feeling, and basically <laughs> has to decide if she's going to kill the man she loves or betray her assassin, Posse. Now, the, the plot for the assassin is strong, but I would say it's also not central. It's one of those films that I found myself... I don't know if this makes sense. I found myself kind of falling in and out of the story. I've seen it twice now, and both times I... I I sort of wavered in and out of what was going on uh, narratively. Um, The action in this film, again, is not like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or House of Flying Daggers. I think the the dominant action in this film is things like flickering of candles and billowing of curtains. It's a very slow, beautiful, hypnotising film. Um, I I adore this movie, but I think if I went in... It's like, oh, would she... If I went in expecting it to be a kind of high-action martial arts movie, I, I probably wouldn't have like this as much as I did.
0: It's it's a genre that is really uh, diverse in, in, in China and you know and I suspect a lot of people with a, with a Chinese or Taiwanese or, or Hong Kong background would be fine with this kind of film, but in, in, in the West we tend to get the sort of high octane martial arts stuff. And e- even before the so called art house wuxia films like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and, and Hero is probably my favourite from mm-hmm. that batch. Um, you know, th- there were some great films like you know Jet Li's Once Upon a Time in in China, um, uh, It's a Foy Sai Yuk, um, Tai Chi Master. I could just reel off Jet Li titles all night. I mean, this this was a big populist. Genre, which often sort of got sold into the West as badly dubbed, you know, B-grade films. But it's it's a really established genre. And if you go right back to the early 70s with films like A Touch of Zen, they actually have a similar kind of pace to this film. And it is that kind of very very slow build and a real harm you know a real harmony of objects in the frame and movement and this kind of balance in 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 nature one one detail i loved about the assassin is this constant feeling of them being surrounded by nature and, and that's very much on on the soundtrack the, the, the ambient sound is constant in this film you know just the sound of bird songs or, or running water or, or, or wind and crickets and it's Yeah, there's a real tranquility to it. And it means that, you know, because you know that it is an assassin plot, there is a plot in this film that involves people getting killed off. And I completely agree with you, Alex, that the the narrative... It's borderline irrelevant, and mm. I don't think how is is that concerned about whether you follow the story or not. And I, as an audience member who has also seen this film twice, didn't really mind because it's more about the atmosphere and the feeling of, of the film. Um, but, yeah, there's a tension in this film. It's like instead of the big action pieces and there are some short, brilliantly choreographed snippets, it's all about the tension and that build and that sense that the violence is coming closer
2: and closer to our kind of characters who mostly exist in this harmonious space. There, yeah, there's uh, that real sense of grace in movement and in composition. I mean, this is a stunningly composed film. Uh, the the imagery throughout it, that the use of colour is exquisite. Mm. It's also so deliberate and presumably painstaking been a few female avenger films uh in this genre i, I think back to the likes of lady snowblood um, yeah. king who had at least one film with a, a female lead uh, I'm, the name's not coming to me right now but there, there, there are a few but this is still very much of its own uh has its very very singular sensibility it's even even more leisurely paced and uh interested in its own aesthetics uh, ahead of uh, plot, which it appears to be thick with superficially, but you, you actually—I d- I defy anybody to keep up with all of the courtroom intrigue mm-hmm. in this, with all of the uh, the strategies being pitched to uh, the chiefs, um, because it's it's just impossible. I mean, really, uh, you're sort of in it in the moment. You go, uh, you hear the, the, this reason for this approach put forward, and then you hear someone rebut it, and then someone else is humiliated, and you know we're, we're used to these scenes playing out and. But often, I suspect, too, really, uh, they're very hard to follow in films in which they might be more significant. Uh, you might try to hang on every word in a more conventional Wuxia film and, and still be at a loss as to really who's about to invade whom next. Um, and it's interesting, all of these renowned, uh, notionally, art house directors who've come into this genre in recent years and I think especially of Wong Kar Wai as well who returned to it after many years away from it a year or two back, The Grandmaster mm. which I didn't actually care for terribly but his I, see, I love that yeah. I, I think it was a 90s film of his, Ashes of Time Ashes is of time, exquisite yeah. but yeah. it too is, is it, it's a bit closer to this than it is to say some of um, so, so the Jet Li type songs, yeah. the songs that we used to perhaps uh, rather appallingly call chop stocky films yeah. back in the day um but gee, they're good. Yeah, oh, <laughs> oh, for sure, absolutely. But Ashes of Time is a good comparison,
0: I yeah, think.
2: Yeah, yeah, just a, that that real gracefulness in movement and just a, a film in love with the possibilities of just colouring in landscape and <laughs> costumes and beautiful human beings.
1: I think how, how Shoshin's. Um his interest in tradition is is quite expansive and i think that the fact that this film is set at the end of the tang Dynasty's, um and and he's on record for saying this is it's it's not just a random decision he's very interested in the chan kui kind of short fictional tradition um and i think that this is actually based on a story called uh nai yinyong um very loosely about the the main character and he's kind of taken from that um He's also said that he's really obsessed with the details of the period and this is one and I was kind of really fascinated with this because I don't remember those little political intrigues, these quite heavy conversations where these very detailed you know, strategies are mapped out. I've, I have very vague memories of of what was going on there. Like I said, I kept falling in and out of the story but the stuff I remember is the stuff that um, Hao Xiaoxin has said that he was obsessed with which is th- researching things like um, bathing. There's different systems mm. and ways of bathing for people of different social rank and that's the stuff that I remember there's a scene where somebody's getting their hair brushed you know just their hair combed and I remember everything about that scene I don't remember what was said in that sequence at all if anything was said but I remember these really tactile textural sensory moments and that's what this film really is for me I love that even that comes out of this sense of tradition and, mm-hmm. and this kind of quite, quite intense research.
0: It's a really sensory film and it fits in with his previous filmography I mean people who have come to this aware of even if they haven't seen his films, if they've read up on his style, have been really happy with this film. I know a lot of people have gone in blind and have been bought out of their minds because they, 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 they just weren't, they didn't prep themselves for the kind of film it's going to be. I mean he makes slow meditative films that often touch on key incidents in Taiwanese and Chinese history. Um but, yeah, and it, 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 it is so remarkable how well he's done that to a genre that is often very, yeah, high-octane, fast-paced, fastly edited, lots of, you know, bodies in motion. I mean, this film even has... An element of magic in it there's a whole sequence with you know a a spell gets cast um there's even a bit of wire work in this film where you know the characters look like they're kind of you know dan well it looks like dance but it looks like they're running up the sides of buildings and bouncing over trees which is a very established idea in this in this genre and it contains one of my, my my favorite um so, what do you call it sort of motifs in this genre where the two feuding characters kind of fly each other here you, know, you hear the kind of flash of blades and then they just there's just land and they're still and you're just waiting to see which one had dealt the deathly blow to the other and which one will just yeah suddenly collapse on the ground while the other one calmly walks away and i think you get that moment twice in this and i was just giddy with excitement in a meditative way
2: also, lots of occasions where our assassin is just framed beautifully, she's just, l- so great. just eavesdropping on things, mm-hmm. just lurking. Not unlike um, with her long hair draped sometimes over her face, uh, uh, a ghost in a Japanese horror film. She's mm. just still and eerie, just off to one side. You know she's there. You know the other characters within frame don't know she's yeah. there. So, and even her costume though I mean it's sort of at a distance it's black for camouflage but
0: whenever you get the camera close to her it is so ornate it's so detailed I mean the way he's thought about lighting setting and costume just to give you these uh, amazing collages of colour it's it's genius stuff this film
2: And people too just embody their roles often with extremely minimal gesturing uh, so the those who have power somehow invested in their being just carry it it's something that's i suppose not uncommon to films of this genre but somehow you get to study it more in this film because his camera's not moving much there's such stillness and so you can really enjoy those subtle gestural uh, indicators that uh, are just what's going on in a character's mind and uh, just what it might take for someone to to snap
1: three triple
0: Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is screening as part of the British Film Festival, and there are some screenings of this film still to come, so we thought we'll talk
2: about it tonight. Cerise. Yeah, it's an important film uh, from 1971. John Schlesinger. Oh, thank you. Uh, followed up a couple of big hits. Um, Billy Lyre actually was just on TV just by chance the other day. Uh, didn't catch it, but it was interesting timing wise. Uh, Darling, a. Wonderful uh, film, really set in the thick of swinging London in 1965 with a very gorgeous Julie Christie in the lead. And that was interesting in that he went to Hollywood, uh, made Midnight Cowboy, Oscar bait, uh, John Barry soundtrack, 1969, snuck some rather gay material in there, very controversial at this time, got it an X rating, an unprecedented X rating. It was so... uh, Whew, you know, pushing some envelopes back in england 1971 sunday buddy sunday it's almost as if he's taken some of what made up darling and some of what made up midnight cowboy so controversial and just melded them together and brought a whole bunch of plummy brits together into sort of some interesting love triangle they are action. plummy
1: they are plummy. They're
2: desperately plummy Glenda jackson gives good plum mind you
1: she's she's welty
2: she did she's great in women in love as well also screening at british film oh. festival uh ken russell film which is Fabulous and beautiful restoration that they're screening here. But let's not jump about too madly. Let's stick with Sunday Bloody Sunday. So named uh, because, well, we're not sure we were debating this off air just prior because the the famous Sunday Bloody Sunday concerning Irish troubles and such wasn't for another year or so. It was a year later, 1972. And, in fact, the the dramatisation
0: of that that Peter Greengrass made maybe 10 or 15 years ago, which was just called Bloody Sunday. Apparently there's a scene in the background where you can see the cinema that's screening Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a nice little tip of the hat. Amazing. Yeah, and that's also the incident that the U2 song was written about. Which we vowed not to. Yeah, admit. well it has nothing to do yeah, So yeah. In, in other words, this film has got nothing
2: to do with the <laughs> Irish troubles. Yes. It's
1: unrelated and we're sorry we brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> what is happening is that we are counting the days down somehow. We're not quite sure of how many days we'll be counting down. We can just presume we're going to wind up on on a Sunday and maybe things are going to come to a head maybe a Murray head very <laughs> <laughs> <buries me>. smooth <laughs> well there are three participants in this love triangle and one is Murray head who remains best known to this day for his uh, 1980s hit One Night in Bangkok which was from the musical Chess yes. from the musical Chess and my, my quick little anecdote about that is in the musical
0: the context is he's this arrogant obnoxious American singing about how much he hates Thailand and it's really racist and cruel and a bit crazy and it's then that, that that song became a pop song in isolation with those lyrics taken out of context are really horrific so it's one of those bizarre little moments in in pop history
1: it's such a great song though he's also yeah. the brother for those of you who are younger and don't mention Murray Head don't remember <laughs> Murray Head's fabulous one night in Bangkok he's also the brother of Anthony Head Miles from Buffy
2: oh get out really brother yeah. Rob,
1: they look the same you can hmm. continue I'm sorry but we I digress my Buffy
2: so two uh, heads are better than one three <laughs> There are three uh, in this, well, that's a love triangle. <laughs> Dairy me. Peter Finch, um, sometimes considered an Australian, uh, plays a well-to-do doctor, Dr Daniel Hirsch, a doctor of the Jewish faith, who is closeted as is the, the way of the times, really. He has lots of friends, but we don't think that they really that aware that he uh, is very enamoured of young Bob Elkin, played by Murray Head, Now, Bob gets about a bit, and I don't mean to suggest that he's uh, especially slatternly a young man, but he's playing two people off against one another a little, you could say. One is Dr. Daniel Hirsch, and the other is Alex Greville, a divorcee played by Glenda Jackson. And rather than problematizing Bob's bisexuality, actually the film's more concerned with the other two uh, people in this triangle and how his... um, Oh, uh, how they struggled to not have him all to themselves and it's, this is why this film was so um, groundbreaking not least because it actually shows some men kissing, oh my god, oh my god 1971. I think uh, homosexuality, now when was that taken off the law books in the UK? The Naked Civil Servant hadn't yet aired on television, I don't think. This is, this is very early days in terms of any yeah. unsensational uh, depictions of homosexual uh, behaviour, relationships and so on, never mind bisexuality. And uh, this film has actually quite a lot of fun with a few other taboos and um, a little bit of these these well-heeled folks engaging in countercultural behaviour, real Chardonnay socialists, you might say. So much so that actually, when a couple of parents head off uh, for a weekend away, probably a dirty weekend somewhere, desperately nice, uh, the kids are even smoking pot. And when I say kids, I'm talking about the under tens. It's, it's a remarkable,
1: remarkable image. <laughs> really, very, very <laughs> funny.
2: Yeah, um, but for the most part, this is a, a it's a drama which doesn't really problematise the problem, you could say, that uh, any other film made around that time would have made of uh, Bob Elkin's um, in deviant ways. What it does do exquisitely is aestheticise London of that period. London has seldom looked so gorgeous on screen, mostly because often it's dreary and dull in reality. <laughs> because it's London, yeah. Yeah, but it looks... <laughs> Wonderful, and uh, the other thing that this film um, really struck me as as being obsessed by and is really beautiful in um, how it looks at kinetic artworks, uh, which it even seems to make of some sort of weird primitive answering service uh, populated by funny little old biddies, but it just occasionally closes in on uh, close ups of these cogs and things whirring and they 're actually really beautiful and uh, quite quite um Uh, For me, I was just immediately fascinated by them. And there seems to be some way that uh, they're they're connected with young Bob's weird kinetic art thingies which just blibble about liquids and things and change colour and are quite pretty. That's a really great observation.
0: You, you've got me thinking what they may have been doing with that because there's a lot of close-ups of both the artwork and the mechanics of the the, the phone system, and I, and I wonder if it's sort of, you know, creating some kind of visual link between the past and the new. And
1: that's flow, one flow. I think it's the idea of flow yeah, of this kind of a yep. natural rhythmic flow of, and I think that that's what the film itself is yeah. about. That things just happen and they flow. I
0: mean, and this is a really modern feeling film. I mean, even by today's standard, watching in 2015, it feels very contemporary and fresh. Absolutely. Just the way it's edited, um, uh, you know, the way there's, there's a lot of dialogue in the film, which isn't necessarily plot-driven, it's just really interesting kind of detailed dialogue that's in there. And the other, I loved in this film this idea that there's constant intrusion from the phone, like the phone is ringing all the time in this film interrupting these characters' lives. And I suppose, you know, it's a really early look at technology, communication technology getting in the way of real human connections, I mean, which is a huge theme that we are are still grappling with now, you know, that, that degree in which it benefits us and it holds us back. Um... But, um... Yeah, it... it, it. And it, as she said, it's a very refreshing modern take on the dynamics of this relationship. There is nothing scandalous or, you know, or, or perverse about the nature of these relationships. It's a story about two people struggling with the fact that the man they love is probably not that committed to either one of them. They would both like him to themselves. He's not thinking really of anything long term with either of them. And it's, you know, it's a very sophisticated contemporary dynamic that that's being explored.
1: What I like is that he's not necessarily demonized for that either the The it, film does it. he's yeah. not the bad guy kind of screwing these people around everybody's very aware of what's going on um I, I read a I was reading up about this film and there was a word that I came across that I've just not been able to shake and I think it was from a contemporary review written when it came out that describes it as a very civilised film hmm. and I just think that's the most perfect word it's, it's so nice. civilised um, just outstanding performances I mean this won a lot of lot of awards, um, BAFTAs and Oscars and all those kind of darling awards that people seem to like um, but you can't I mean you just can't, I mean Peter Finch the final monologue in this film for me that's the kind of stuff that you, you spend a a lifetime of film watching, just to get a moment like that. I mean, it, I think he wasn't the, the first choice for this role, and I can't imagine anybody else in it. He's just—I mean, this is one of the great Peter Finch films. It's—it's it's certainly up there with uh, with Network, which I guess is his most famous film that was—he um, won an award for posthumously. I want to give a shout out to Penelope Gilliatt, um, who we haven't mentioned yet. She was—she uh, wrote this, and she's a big name. She's a tribal elder for my people. She was. Um, major US film critic at the New Yorker where she worked alongside Pauline Cale. Um, and I'm always fascinated by critics who are also makers because there's not a whole lot. There's some famous examples, but not, not large in numbers. And um, Penelope Gilliatt won, again, she won a whole bunch of awards for the script. And I think that, the, I mean, the performances are incredible, but the script is what holds this together. Uh, remarkable, remarkable writing.
2: Yeah, when we think of critics who became filmmakers, especially of significance, we mostly think of the French, uh, the whole Nouvelle Vague. Um, There there is something very steeped in in film uh, that it seems of its time, but sort of a bit ahead of it, too, that, that there is something... While the camera is very agile in this, uh, there's a lot of terrific handheld work. It's really uh, quite claustrophobic even at times in these sometimes quite, you sense, spacious, well-appointed rooms. But uh, it's, it's really mobile and that, that's not so common around 1971 either. But there's just that, that sense of um, the various new waves that the 60s brought in. Um, and introduce a whole lot, of, a whole lot to the vocabulary of cinema. It's, it's really evident in this film. Uh, Schlesinger's all over it, and um, I, I find it, it, this whole film still very engaging. I think some aspects of the sexual politics feel a little dated because this doesn't feel uh revelatory anymore it couldn't possibly if it did we'd have to really be very concerned about the the state of current uh sexual politics but it's um still feels energetic and vital and and occasionally actually a little upsetting there's a a scene involving a dog that's very upsetting and that it really is quite unsparing and um and just a sense of uh, how th- the way children are em- deployed in this film. It actually, don't see that a lot in contemporary cinema. These kids behaving a bit like adults, but not in some sort of American smarmy, knowing sort of a way where the kids precocious and it's, you know the laugh track goes bananas. The- these kids are. Um, I don't know, what were they actually smoking? were they,
0: they even smoking anything? I think that the whole film likes a culture on a tipping point. There's a mass change about to happen. Yeah. There's a cultural revolution about to happen. And, and you feel that in the energy of this film. And, and, and sort of secondary characters like the very bourgeois hippie family who, you know, they're obviously very middle class, very wealthy, but they have these fairly libertarian ideas. You know, the kids smoking dope. And they seem to have taken in an African professor as sort of a border who they both adore and seems slightly condescending to and he's, he's just there all the time and, and even the film crosses boundaries like it goes into the unconscious we, we sort of get some very strange flashbacks and kind of regressions of childhood with some of the characters and revisiting trauma and then seamlessly goes
2: back into this very naturalistic narrative and then breaking the fourth wall at the very end even Mm. though at first not sure if that's what's actually happening who's he addressing who's he he seems to be staring down the barrel of the camera but
1: oh yes oh just a magical moment Just one of the the great to camera speeches i think of british cinema just beautiful
2: we are talking
0: about Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It's one of ten films that's screening as part of the Love Actually uh, program. Uh, if you want more info about the British Film Festival, go to britishfilmfestival.com.au. There are still plenty of screenings of of this film coming up. And we're pretty much close to the end of Plato's Cave for another week. There are quick items
2: of business we wanted to to, to cover. Cerise, you're going to be on The breakfast tomorrow. tomorrow. You're going to quickly tell us what that's I all will, about. around 8.30. 30, no, 8.45 tomorrow, I'll be talking about Tilda, Melbourne's trans and gender-diverse film festival. I'll be an interviewee rather than some sort of person co-hosting a show-type scenario, and I'm rather looking forward to that.
0: When is Tilda happening? It's this weekend come, coming, it,
2: isn't it? It is. It's this Friday yeah. through to the Sunday, but does Melbourne's trans big screen or smaller screen or just screen action end there? No, Thomas, it does not, because <laughs> this Thursday <laughs> I'll actually be presenting a panel at ACME as well, hosting a panel about the TV show Transparent. Quite excited about that too. And Alex, did you want to do a brief dedication to the, the, the yeah, sad news to do, we had today? Yeah, I wanted
1: to have a bit of a public mourn for Gunnar Hansen. Thomas, um, stop grinning. Yeah, he's, he's one of my people. He's a tri- <laughs> talking about tribal elders. <laughs> Pauline, Kale and Gunnar Hansen, that's me. Uh, Gunnar Hansen, <laughs> if the party. name's not... The unholy youth. <laughs> <laughs> if the name's not ringing a bell, uh, Gunnar Hansen played Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He passed away uh, yesterday, uh, late last night. Our time, um, I believe, 68 years old, very sad, a very important guy for people like me who are into horror. A beautiful, sensitive performance in a film that could not be described as beautiful or sensitive.
0: But a masterpiece nonetheless. Just a
1: remarkable film.
0: A masterpiece and an iconic character, yeah. He will be missed... We're come, we've, we have come to the end of Plato's Cave now. Just quickly, we looked at Tanner. That's screening at Cinema Nova, The Sun Theatre and Cameo Cinemas, courtesy of Bonsai Films. The Assassin is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Vendetta Films. And Sunday Bloody Sunday is screening as part of the BBC Burst British Film Festival, which is presented by Palace. Next week on the show, we're going to look at Spectre, the new James Bond film. Night of Cups, the new film by Terence Malick. And we'll look at another classic from uh, the British Film Festival's Love Actually program. Good night from us.
2: This has been a podcast
0: from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent
2: community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.